Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. Just chatting a little bit earlier to Farn van der Valt from We Buy Cars, and it's clearly quite becoming quite a traumatic experience buying a car and selecting the vehicle that is correct for you because you don't want to be buying a, a massive gas-guzzling um, car, for example, now and in 12 months' time realize that you've overspent and that you can't afford the insurance and that you can't afford the repayments and you certainly can't afford the fuel and uh, the insurance is a big component of it as well. And so you really have to be well prepared when it comes to making that vehicle acquisition. And I kind of looked at this um, topic that you wanted to talk about, Warren, and I thought, how to prepare for buying a car? I mean, this isn't marriage. This isn't um, go preparing for an operation. It's probably worse, actually, because unfortunately, no matter what car you're buying, it's a big ticket item, no matter you know, where, which level you're aiming at. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, when you look at the, the average uh, income earner in South Africa, someone who you know who who is getting a, a decent salary, and that salary starts to rise uh, th- through their career. The the car purchase decision for me very often is the is the key decision to determine whether whether that person will go on the path to financial freedom or they they stay on the path to financial drudgery and and you know the, the the debt burden that just grows on them through throughout their career as their ability to earn grows uh, and and their debt burdens grow and I, I know it's a big statement but but i think uh, you know just looking at the way people spend money and when you ask them you know look, looking at your expenses tell me what proportion of your money goes to your car tell me what proportion goes to your house what proportion goes to savings and very often the proportion that goes to the car is way bigger than than the proportion that goes to their savings uh, and, and i know you know car decisions in south africa are are key fr- from the point Point of view, we, most of us cannot rely on on, on public transport in, in in South Africa to earn a living. So, so the, the moment we can afford to, from an earnings point of view, the moment we can afford to actually buy a car, it, it is a very key decision because it might well be in the difference between you know being able to earn a salary and not, or being able to earn a better salary or not. And, and so, I think it's it is a key financial decision. The problem is. Uh, the, the, the buying of a car, we're up against uh, two really heavy uh, headwinds here. And the first one is we're up against some of the best marketing engines known to mankind. And th- those marketing engines mm. are the car manufacturers. They are, and and I'm, I'm an absolute victim, and I think I must be amongst their favorite victims of all time, but, but I'm one of those people. I, I fall prey to to reading, uh, you know, about cars as they get released, the new technologies that come out, the you know the ability for the car to almost drive itself, and how much less fuel it's going to consume, and all these safety features and everything else, and and I find it absolutely enthralling. So so for me to walk into a dealership on my own, unprepared, and 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 kind of without protection, uh, is, is really lethal because there is a really good chance I'm, I'm I could be walking out with okay. w- w- with a with a car I don't need. Okay, forewarned is forearmed. I mean, and the pressure on the, in South Africa to have a car that one is safe enough um, because you don't want it breaking down. You don't want to be stuck on the road at night um, anywhere, suburbs or, or on highways, anywhere, rural areas. You want to ensure the car is reliable as possible. You want to ensure that if you do get taken out by another driver on the road, that the car in which you are traveling 
is gives you as much protection as possible with as many safety features as possible. And for every little uh, extra thing that you buy, um, it doesn't add up in hundreds or in thousands. It adds up in tens of thousands of rand. So how do we go in forewarned, forearmed without sort of prejudicing the purchase in the first place, Warren. We want to make the purchase, but we want to make the right purchase. What do we need to have front and center of what our thinking is? I think the first thing is right on that list of criteria that you absolutely need in a car. So what are the things that are that are absolutely necessary, not the wants, but the, but the needs. In other words, uh, you, you know, you need uh, you need to be able to transport, you know, a family of three or a family of four. Uh, you know, that that's obviously key. Um, you know, so, some people might need to transport a family of five or six, and 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 so that that that's an important point. You you need a car that's either you know only suitable for for short journeys around town because you don't you know you don't go long distances or you do go long distances. Uh, so so get the key points and I. Think I think critically there, don't buy the car that you need for one holiday a year. Very often talking to people, they'll say to me, I absolutely need an SUV because my family, um, you know, all my kids and their friends, we all go on holiday uh, and and we need to be able to take all our luggage safely and and, and all the things that we need, the dog, the cat and everything else. And and then I ask them how many times they do that. And they do that once a year in December. And and so they buy a car that they don't need for the rest of the year, to th- that size and that capacity. Yeah. So so that's an example. So so get to the point of what you absolutely need, and, and then most critically, put down exactly what it is that you can afford to spend, uh, wh- where you're still allocating money for savings, where you're still allocating money for the other expenses in life. And and you mentioned at the, at the start that includes things like insurance. It includes things like maintenance costs, uh, you know, tire changes, all of those things, license fees. Uh, and, and then also you, 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 need to, you need to say to yourself, uh, what do I do from the point of view when I need to change this car in a few years' time? In other words, uh, how quickly can you pay off this car and then, and then drive a paid-off car? So, so you've got to make all of those decisions, all of those calculations before you walk or go anywhere near a website or a dealership. You've, you've got to be very prepared as to as to how you're going to do this. And then I think also insulate yourself from 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 the the sales pitch of well, well you know, we, we can sell you a car that will meet your monthly uh, budget. In other words, you can only spend five thousand rand a month on a car. No problem. We we can do that for you. Uh, We'll simply sell you the car for the next eight years that you can pay it off, and then at the end of eight years, you can pass a thirty-five percent balloon payment. Okay, so now this is the, no, stop right here, Warren, because you now <laughs> are, push, are pushing my buttons. Because you've got to understand that it's not about the monthly affordability. It's not that you can afford five thousand rand a month. Um, it, it's a case of understanding what the overall purchase price of the car is. If you've got money for a deposit, to put as much of a deposit down as possible, to shorten the repayment term of the car uh, and, and to get it paid off in the shortest possible time. If you can possibly pay cash for the car, pay cash for the car. But don't get caught in the trap of extending the term of payment because it's offered to you. There's nothing more debilitating than six years into an eight-year car payment to be simply thinking, this thing's falling apart. And <laughs> I've driven it like a lunatic and it's had a few bangs and bashes and I, you know, I've claimed on my insurance already and my premium's gone through the roof and I've still got two years of payments on the skadonk. Um, and then 
you know, to add insult to injury, because you could afford 5,000 rand a month and they sold you the fancy BM or the fancy Merc or whatever it was that you really shouldn't have bought because you were more a Corolla sort of person, um, and with all due respect to Corollas, they're lovely cars, um, you, you now sit with a balloon payment of 25 or 30%, and you've now got to find cash to pay for this thing. Otherwise, you've got to give it back, and it's not worth what you thought it would be worth when you bought it seven, six or seven years ago. It's, it's a horrible set of circumstances you can get caught up in. Absolutely. And, 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 and just quickly in defense of Corollas, the Corolla will probably have a better resale value compared to what yeah. you paid for it by the end yeah. of the eight years. So, <laughs> so I think that the, your, your, your comment on the, uh, on the upfront payment is, is key there. So, so building up the biggest deposit you possibly can is, is, is a key point. And, and, and I would say that, that I can't find a justification. I have not seen one in my lifetime so far, so, so I, I, I can't say I've re- re- read every financial model ever given to someone when they're trying to buy a car, but I've never seen the justification for a balloon payment at the end. The, the, the other key point there is when you're looking at that monthly repayment calculation that's being offered to you, look at the interest rates. Because w- when I look at the interest rates being offered to, to people to buy cars, in most instances, that interest rate is really high. It's, it's often 4 or 5% higher than what you would pay on a home loan. So, so that, that leads me maybe to my other very key point here is, you, you know, you, you said try and buy the car cash. I agree, I agree 100%. But, but maybe even more importantly, absolutely ignore buying a new car. I know that's really going to upset the motor manufacturers. They need to sell lots of new cars. Uh, they, they can sell that to someone else. If you're a private individual and you're, and you're doing this to, to get yourself around and financial freedom is important to you, buy a secondhand car because you, you're going to save a huge amount of money. At the very least, out of every 100,000 Rand, you're probably going to save 15,000 Rand uh, j- just by buying a car that's one year old. And, and if, you, you know, if you're not going to drive a heck of a lot and you, and you have got time on your side, uh, you, you know, buying a three-year-old car, the, 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 the safety argument is nonsense. You know, ca- cars are so well-made nowadays that a three-year-old car is incredibly safe. So, so, I mean, you can read up about the safety of the car before you buy it, by all means. But, but if a car has been well-serviced and well-maintained for the first three years of its life, and you drive it for another five years, I'm very sure that if you've looked after it properly, it's still an incredibly safe vehicle. So safety is not an argument. And I, and I think that, you know, that's a key point here. Don't, don't fall for a prey to the sales pitch. You know, you know you've got to say to yourself, I'm, I'm doing something for, for me and my family to get us from point A to point B so that we can earn an income, so that we can get to financial freedom, not so we can make the motor manufacturers rich or the finance houses who are selling us cars over eight years and, and giving us you know, those big balloon payments at the end at 13% interest rates. That, all of that stuff is rubbish. It's just not in your, in your best interest. It's in their best interest. And I think it's a key point here. And maybe, maybe one other thing, and I must say that this is the way I protect myself, is I have all of these conversations with my wife before the time. Uh, we, we discuss this ad nauseum and probably for six months before, before we make a decision. Uh, and, and she is particularly not a car person. So, so when that car buying decision comes, I take her with. And, and she's my protection. She is my bodyguard <laughs> against making bad financial decisions here. And, and I think if you're a... You know, if you're a single person and you're you're about to go and buy your new, you, you know, your your first car. I'm not saying new, but new for you. Uh, take somebody with you that's done this a lot before. Take somebody with you who's not emotional about cars, who's completely focused on on, on the financial side of this. Because the upsell, 
the upsell danger at that moment of the transaction for only an extra thousand rand a month. I can give you the little dangly balls that hang from the tow bar. Oh, did I not mention the tow bar was an extra? But you must have a tow bar because maybe one day you'll want to have a boat. Um, and, you know, what happens if your kids, oh, you don't have kids, but you will have kids and they'll need bicycles and you'll need to, you know, oh, my goodness gracious me. And you're going to get yourself talked into brokenness. But thank you, Warren. I think that's a very important and valuable conversation. There's another bit we need to talk about. And uh, it comes. it's a, an email from Esther, who's turning 48 this year and is starting to think more about retirement and wants to make sure that she's doing the right thing with investments. And there's been a recent change in legislation, which means that her pension fund is likely to have more offshore exposure. That was a big breakthrough in the budget this year. Her tax-free savings account is invested offshore through a feeder fund. Long-term investment account is invested in a local balanced unit trust fund. Although I think my offshore exposure will be somewhere between 40 to 50%. Is it necessary to increase my offshore exposure? I don't plan to move to another country. So should I invest directly offshore? It's a great question and it's one with which people are grappling all the time, Esther. That question answered by Warren in a moment. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. So Esther's laid out her case. She's got good investments and she wants to do more investing. Does she need to increase her offshore exposure, which currently sits between 40 and 50 percent? Warren. I think it's a, uh, you're right. It's an absolutely key question that, that a lot of people are grappling with now. My, my view is that uh, if you're if you're going to retire uh, with just enough money, so in other words, you, you, you do your calculations and you get to the point where you say, I'm probably going to use most of my my money over my lifetime. I'm going to leave behind maybe a little bit to 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 the next generation, but not much. And I do plan to stay in South Africa. I, I think having an allocation around about 25 to 50 percent of your investments in in overseas markets it makes a lot of sense. I don't think you need to do more than that. I think if you're at the point where where you believe you might leave leave behind a decent amount of money to the next generation, that then you know moving your overseas allocation from from that level from twenty five to fifty to to a range of fifty to seventy five percent makes sense. And if you're one of the Rockefellers and you're going to leave behind lots of money to lots of generations, then maybe increase that allocation to to seventy five percent offshore. And the reason there, just to explain that, is is you're not making a call on South Africa. You're making a call. On, on investing over p- periods of very long periods of time. You know, if you're investing for the, for two generations, you know, that's 50 to 75 years from now. And, and that means you need to be phenomenally diversified across as many countries as possible, across as many sectors as possible. And, and then, you know, your you know, major exposure to, to one country doesn't make sense. So, so the call is more about your, your financial position than, than worrying about timing markets or timing the RAND or, or making a forecast about the, the, the JSE or the SA economy over the next five years. The, the truth is, none of us know. You know, we can all give you great arguments about why we think the RAND is going to strengthen or weaken what the JSE is going to, you know, fall, fall or rise. And, and the truth is, we don't know. So, so when you're in a, in a position like this and you're trying to make these long-term decisions for yourself, I think build it around your the things you know and the things you can control and and then decide. So in your case, Esther, I, I mean, I think it's going to be dependent on what you what, what sort of money you have and how much you're going to leave behind to the next generation. But 
But that ratio of 40 to 50%, I think, is, is great. There's nothing wrong with that. Do you need to specifically open up an offshore account and, and send the money directly overseas? I'm, I'm not convinced, and unless it's you know really significant amounts um, you, you know that you've built up in big lump sums. But if you're doing monthly savings, you know, e- either in tax frees or uh, or in retirement funds, or just a little bit extra in, in, in other unit trusts or, or exchange traded funds, no problem. You, you can do that into what they call feeder funds, which give you the good offshore exposure, but uh, you know, but you don't go th- don't go through that process of having to pay for foreign exchange conversion costs and convincing SARS that you're not a drug smuggler or something like that. You can you can do all of this stuff, you know, in, in, in South African investments only. Okay. Um, and people are, again, the, the internet is a, a weird and wonderful place. Social media is particularly divisive on this issue and you've got lots of vested interests and we've spoken about this many times in the past and people are pushing their own agendas, pushing very hard um, to uh, have you buy their products. And you've got to be very clear as to what the intention of the person who is promoting their particular view on the world is. Is their view to help you? Are they good people who want to help you? Or are they people who want to sell you their product regardless of whether it's right for you or not? Um, And I think that's a critical distinction to be able to make. Absolutely, and I think you know. To me, the, the way the way to decipher or, or, or to, to kind of you know filter the wheat from the chaff in an instance like this is to say, uh, what what is their message? What is their core message? If they're if they're selling me an investment uh, because it's it's appealing to fear. In other words, they're telling me South Africa's you know going down the tubes, and and the only way is out. Uh, that that that's a that, that that's a really bad sign as far as I'm concerned. Or if they're selling you. Are purely on greed, you know that that you've got to go and buy this, you know, newfangled investment because it's going to double your money every every year or every second year. And another really bad sign. Investment decisions that are made for two or three decades, and that's the case with with someone like Esther. Is you've got to say it's got to be really strategic, really rational, really well thought out. And very much built around you as the individual investor and your requirements, not about what a fund manager or a product mm. provider or some salesman thinks about the, the next you know year or two. Because the truth is, they're often caught out. They're very often wrong, and and they don't kind of brag about their wrongs. They are, they obviously only brag about the one or two times a year that they you know or, or decade even that they're right. And that's a terrible way to to kind okay. of t- take a long term recommendation. Before we talk about your phrase of the week, a little bit of context on this one, because um, I, the youngest member of our household is about to turn 10 years old. And I was having a, a little moment the other day, as one does at wake-up time, and you're looking at this cute little thing in bed, and you are saying, you know what, I can't believe that you're already nine, and you're going to be 10 next week. It's unbelievable to me. And his response to this, and I said, I can't believe you're going to be double digits soon. And he looked up at me and he went, oh, no. I said, what do you mean, oh, no? Aren't you excited about what we've got planned? He said, yes. But it's another year closer to paying tax. And I just thought to myself, (laughs) my boy, be paying attention. Oh, it's all been worthwhile. Oh, man, it was, it was one of those great moments. What is income tax? My, my nine turning 10-year-old knows, and he's not looking forward to it very much. 
So, so income tax is is the the, the tax that governments uh, w- will impose on us, and our government is no different uh, on on those of us as individuals where where we earn. A tax, uh, for example, we earn an income from a salary, or we earn rent, or we earn interest. We we will need to pay a portion of that uh, to, to to the government, and that's generally going to be called personal uh, personal income tax. Uh, and and equally for companies that operate in South Africa, where, where they earning income as well, that they would pay corporate income tax. Uh, and and that you know in in a good country, in a good uh, well managed economy, that that money is used by government. To fund, you know, education, hospitals, roads, all of those th- those things. So it's a it's a very necessary form of tax. Much as none of us will will ever want to pay it, uh, but but it is necessary for a functioning society uh, to, to to work properly over over the long term. But but certainly income tax, it's it's usually for individuals somewhere around, let, let's say, you know, on average about twenty to forty five percent of of what we earn, uh, and and then for companies. Uh, it's currently 28%, about to go down to 27% of what, what companies earn. So, so very different from things like VAT and, and all the other kinds of taxes, capital gain tax. This is the core main tax that, that individuals and companies earn on, on, the, on the income that they generate in, in a normal tax year. Thank you. Warren Ingram, Executive Director at Galileo Capital, regular contributor to The Money Show and personal finance specialist Warren Ingram this evening.